if you don't drain the swamp, you're always playing catch up and that's just a horrible position to be in because you feel like every day you're going to wake up to yet another public humiliation because you've got something terribly badly wrong. In 2014, Andy McGuire joined HSBC as Group Chief Operating Officer at one of the most difficult times in the bank's history. Investigations had revealed that poor control processes had led to billions in illicit funds moving through the bank, funding drug cartels and terrorists. Andy had a critical role in engineering an extensive remediation process that took years and millions of dollars. But during that process, his team made huge leaps forward and the transformation contributed to significant innovations that still have impacts a decade later. This is BCG on Compliance, a podcast that explores today's most pressing criminal trends and how compliance professionals are adapting to stay ahead of that curve. I'm Hanjo Seibert. HSBC's Troubles began in the early 2000s when their control systems had started to fail. And in 2012, US authorities found that these failures had permitted a host of financial crimes. Not long after, Andy waded into the bank's very turbulent waters. When I joined the firm in 2014, we were under a $1.9 billion, if I remember correctly, deferred prosecution agreement with the Department of Justice. And the things that we'd done wrong were obviously in that court case. They started with cash handling in Mexico. So HSBC Mexico's share of cross-border US dollar cash transactions was way in excess of our branch share. That led to some issues that being linked to the cartels, which got us the attention of law enforcement Our issues were not confined, though, to Mexico, so there were multiple failures in how we did financial crime compliance, how we set thresholds for transaction monitoring. It was not pretty. So from the point where things were going on in Mexico and elsewhere, what then triggered the initial investigations and the remediation work that then subsequently you guys started? So the problems went back to long before I joined the bank, um, so to the early 2000s mostly, and they were around mishandling of dollar transactions and having the right information about those things, the risk ratings of clients, and then the alert generation. So the deferred prosecution agreement was entered into 2011, 2012. I was working with the bank, but as an advisor, they had begun to try to figure out what they needed to do to fix the problems. To help us along that path, the Department of Justice appointed a monitor. So that's a skilled person who essentially is embedded inside the institution and hires a team who look over your shoulder all day, every day. So um, not a happy situation to walk into as a new senior executive on the group management board. Having uh, legal persons as monitors look over your shoulder all the time, that must have been fun. But (laughs) how was it like to work for HSBC at the times of remediation? Honestly, it was quite difficult. Um, HSBC is the only bank who's never had to be recapitalized by a government ever in their history. HSBC hadn't had a financial crisis, so it had provided liquidity to the world through the GFC just a couple of years earlier. So it was a very, very rightly proud institution. So this was a huge embarrassment. We had a not very nice phrase, a thing called consequence management. So 
basically if you weren't doing what you needed to do, consequences would be applied to you. So that made people really very anxious and not a little afraid that didn't lead to a healthy atmosphere. So really quite tricky. And then I think on top of that, a couple of false starts in fixing the problem in financial crime. The remediation process was complicated by the involvement of multiple stakeholders. HSBC has four different global lines of business with operations around the world. It meant everybody wanted to do, they saw the problem differently and they wanted to do different things to fix the problem. So I think a very sensible conclusion was come to, which is we needed to have a single global standard, single approach. So we designed for each of the global lines of business a highest common factor that was good to go everywhere. And then where there were small add-ons required by jurisdiction, we did those as well. I think you were one of the first large GSIP banks who did a fully scaled remediation in the compliance and AFC space. And you guys had to figure it out because you were one of the first to do it at that scale. Yeah, that's right. There was no playbook for this. Unfortunately, lots of other people roughly at the same time were learning the same painful lessons, but also making the same mistakes. With the benefit of hindsight, it is actually quite straightforward. So I think step one is what we called data readiness, which sounds ridiculously straightforward. But of course, within a bank, you have many equivalents of a data field for any given customer, whether it's an individual or a legal entity. So actually figuring out what data that you have, how current and consistent and correct it is, is job number one. Because if you don't have that, you don't know how to set up your plumbing to source the data to run your compliance machine. We took a long time to do that. I think we did a very good job on it, actually. I've seen a lot of others then do it not so well, but more quickly and then live to regret it. So data readiness, step one. We obviously had know your customer and customer due diligence file remediation to do. You can only do that if you've done the data readiness. So you, you know what you've got and you know what you don't and you know what's in date and out of date. So that allows you to then go to your customers and ask the questions that you need to to essentially complete the, the KYC file. We certainly made mistakes on that um, because we were so worried about the risks we were running and really wanting to be discharged from the DPA. We asked far too many questions of all of our customers of all types, essentially to protect ourselves, which meant we frustrated, irritated and, and lost a lot of customers by asking so many questions with such persistence. So after a while, our high risk customers were KYC file remediated, then our medium risk, then the lower risk, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason that matters is if you don't get that right, then you don't have the right customer risk rating. And if you don't have the right customer risk rating, as all of our listeners will know, you'll do the wrong things in transaction monitoring and name screening. All of that amounts to, in a charming phrase, draining the swamp. If you don't drain the swamp, you're always playing catch up. And that's just a horrible position to be in because you feel like every day you're going to wake up to yet another public humiliation potentially because you've got something terribly badly wrong. It's an awful lot of hard work. It cost us a lot of money, but it got us to being, I'd say, pretty much fully effective at financial crime 
compliance, but at quite a cost in lost customers, some deliberate, but also some accidental, certainly uh, at a cost to our business growth, and then also to what it cost us in operational expenses, which were measured in billions of dollars for us over that period of time. What can banks practically do to get their data readiness up? Because I think everyone wants to, and then everyone struggles with the complexity and the effort and the longevity of the journey. So any tips, anything you can share from your experience? The narrow, rich data that you really need that drives everything really must be done best and first. There's no point having hundreds and thousands of relatively weak incremental data fields for your customers if you don't have the core correct. Proof of identity, proof of address, with everything there and nothing missing. So trying to figure out non-intrusive ways to have your customers almost not realize that you're constantly updating some of that information. Now, some people with a technological background, and I'm engineered by background, say, well, you can get that from this data source or that data source, or you can infer it from other things that people do. Well, you can, maybe, but if you get it wrong, and it means you get an adverse outcome in financial crime compliance, the fact that you've done something clever with technology to infer or create data is a very poor trade-off, I would say. In the midst of this stressful and expensive remediation, HSBC managed to introduce a great deal of innovation into the process. The company spearheaded new technologies that continue to transform compliance. Once we got started, we knew that there were much more effective and efficient ways of doing what we were doing. So we started designing and building around roboticization and some machine learning things, even as we were doing the swamp draining part. But we also had designed and built and formed partnerships with a lot of reg techs. We're always thinking about what would come next that would replace the people with technology. How did you go about getting the right reg techs and startups? And then also how did you connect from an ecosystem perspective, let me call it the quote-unquote zoo of different vendors that are all kind of trying to figure out how to do something at the scale of HSBC. I wasn't interested in the best solution you could find unless it was globally deployable. So we needed things that worked, not just in the English language, but in Chinese, simplified Chinese, Arabic, etc., etc. So The other thing was we wanted things that would make a $50 million difference to us or more. We already, we had, I think if I remember correctly, 7,000 odd applications that ran the business. We didn't want another 7,000 to run financial crime. We wanted to run it on a relatively small number of globally consistent systems that worked in all of our languages and were applicable to our global standards. And then the second level was, what was it going to make a significant difference? Because getting it fully plumbed and wired into our systems and data centers is a non-trivial undertaking. So you needed to know that it was going to be worth your while when you got there. So I, th I think $50 million was the impact that we were looking for to make it worth our while. If we take a step back and look at the overall remediation and transformation work you did over the years outside of remediation, what were the values you delivered? 
So if we think about transaction monitoring back in 2014 and before, we would have had three levels of transaction monitoring. So an alert gets spat out. And in the beginning, a human being would have um, done the disposition of that alert. So they would have basically done an investigation. It would have passed that on to level two. Ideally, the level two person wouldn't have repeated all the work, but quite often they did repeat somewhere all of the work. And then, yes or no, they may have agreed with the level one conclusion or disagreed. And then it finally would go to level three, so back to compliance in the jurisdiction. And they would decide whether or not that was correct or not. So quite a lot of repetitions and quite a lot of human involvement. By the time I retired, so now three years ago, I'm sure it's much, much better now. Level one and level two are all the same. They're all highly automated. So the alert production is much better. There are many fewer false positives. Those alerts are then prioritized and triaged. Many of them are auto-closed, so no human involvement at all. And I think the time to do it went down more than 70%. And I think from a cost point of view, the cost reduction was something in the order of 70% as well. So much, much better outcomes with a much higher bar, with much more sophisticated and continuously better detection scenarios, and then really saving human beings for what they're good at, which is when the machine has sort of exhausted itself doing the things it can do, it's the human judgment of should we call this a suspicious transaction or not. That's what you really want, is you want the humans doing the not even the last mile, it's the last step or two in the last mile. Andy, if we look a little bit ahead and uh, move towards also your role now, you said you're a board member of a bank, etc. So you're still very closely tied up with the financial services industry and the banking industry specifically. What's changed with regards to compliance and anti-financial crime? In many ways, nothing has changed. For the people who are having difficulties, I speak to people at other big banks who are literally going through the same pain that I went through 10 years ago. So it's still going on. I think the opportunities to do what we did faster and better are there, but you still have to do the basics that we talked about on draining the swamp. I think the commercially available tools to do much better KYC, dynamic customer risk rating, transaction monitoring tools. There are many more good solutions. None of them are perfect because if they were, there wouldn't be so many of them. So that it's still a complicated and confused landscape, but there are many good solutions out there. What innovation with regards to handling transformations and remediations, but also in general, what innovation with regards to anti-financial crime do you see in the market ahead of us in the near future? I think we will see much better use of non-proprietary information. But I would just, a word of warning on, on that too, though, is you need to be absolutely clear what the source and the currency of that data is, otherwise it's a risk. So not knowing where the information came from and not knowing what its ultimate source was and not knowing how current it is, I, I think that is unacceptable. But but I, I see a lot more external data sourcing and data validation. So I think that's a good thing and that makes life more straightforward. I think a lot of improvement in digital channels 
finding ways to constantly update, so to get to the situation of perpetual KYC, so micro updates all the time, but then also to collect, validate, and make sure they are non-fraudulent, all the documentation that you need to collect and gather. I think there's an awful lot of nonsense talked about AI and cognitive AI and generative AI, and you need to be really careful. Most of what we've talked about in this podcast is run by models that are properly and correctly under governance. They're not a black box. They are predictable, inspectable, regulatable, and they must remain so. But I, I do think there are absolutely things where artificial intelligence are absolutely applicable. But I would say with care and caution, and even if you can't use AI, I think there's an awful lot to be done in data analytics and machine learning to do rule discovery that you can then implement in a model under governance. This is a perfect place for best of breed, wisdom of millions and billions of transactions going through a smaller number of systems so they build up more intelligence in the systems themselves. I think it's a perfect example of it. Big improvements in data, data sourcing, making sure that it's true, fair, correct, up-to-date, Less irritation for customers, more ease of customers responding with the things that can't be sourced any other way. Much more automation, machine learning, AI, and maybe even a bit of generative AI in the appropriate places. Much better models, much better detection scenarios. I would like to see, as a board member of a bank, continued strong collaboration between industry players because everybody being smarter at identifying and stopping bad actors is a good thing for everybody. That's a great summary. And my last question, any advice you can give a compliance executive these days for the people sitting in the in the hot seat on what's coming for the next two or three years? Chief compliance officers have a very difficult job. If you're new to it, get to be part of the community. Reach out and learn the lessons of others because... We've all made mistakes. I think I've been very open about the mistakes I made and we made. There's no need to make them if somebody can um, steer you away from them. I think your professional services partners can show you the art of the possible. Not every firm has exposure to all of the best ideas. So I would shamelessly speak to all of my professional services partners and see different things from different angles. Perfect. Thank you so much for your perspectives, Andy. It's always great to uh, speak to you, to listen to you. So thank you, Andy. You're very welcome, Hanyu. It's been a real pleasure to be with you today. That was my conversation with Andy McGuire, BCG's Chair of Global Banking. What other transformation innovations do you think we need in compliance today? Join the conversation by connecting with us on your podcast app, writing a review of the show or emailing us at bcgoncompliance at bcg.com. And be sure to subscribe to get more insights from compliance innovators everywhere. I'm Hanyo Seibert. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.